the reading of God's. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 24. I'd ask you to please rise for the reading of God's word. Luke 24, Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Please be seated. Thank you, Josh. It's a joy for me to be able to share the Word of God with you uh, this morning. And we're glad to have our son Andrew and his wife Sarah, and there are three little ones here and two others of our grandchildren whose parents are off doing something else. But uh, it's a small world. Uh, Andrew was uh, saying to me that uh, the missionary that the Romanian team went to uh, help out was um, one of his Bible school mates in the same dorm at Briarcrest. So, uh, I was glad to hear of that report. So there's um, an insert in your bulletin, if you'd like to find it, called uh, On the Importance of Eyeglasses. It's been a joy for Carol and I to share in a small group, um, along with Ken and Cara and Pastor Zig and Edie and Chris and Doris over the last year or so. It's been a, a joy to us, and the, we've got together for coffee and done some meals together too, so uh, we'll miss Ken and Cara and uh, greatly appreciate uh, their friendship. Well, for much of my life, I've worn glasses, uh, formerly known as, of course, corrective lenses. Uh, started early when I was in grade 10. I had to have an A on my license, which means adequate 
lenses, and as I get older, of course, the problem's getting worse. I now wear bifocals, and some of you may have even progressed to trifocals. But that's just the way life is. And the problem, of course, is that I do not see things clearly. Without adequate lenses, my whole perspective is off. It's skewed, and that can have serious consequences, especially if one's driving. If I depend on my vision without having the right lenses, some bad things can happen. So I just want to keep that as a picture in your mind as we look today uh, at the scripture which has been read for us, particularly focusing on verses 25 to 27, because what we're going to see is we're going to see our Lord Jesus ministering to two a very ordinary people in the midst of their confusion and loss and blindness and how he ministers to them. So with regard to our text, let's just look at a couple introductory matters before we look at verses 25 to 27 in particular. So the immediate context, uh, the ESV says that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. So it's a Resurrection Sunday. Uh, the Lord Jesus has uh, risen from the dead. That knowledge is just gradually beginning to spread out amongst his disciples. And some people are struggling to believe that it's really true. So why is that? Why did they have such a struggle? Well, the disciples had seen Jesus heal the sick and raise the dead and calm storms on the lake and multiply five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 people. And they asked themselves, how could he die like that? How could it just happen that he be taken away from us in such a, an awful way? How could betrayal and the cross and the tomb have happened to the anointed one, to God's anointed one, the Messiah? So the events of Good Friday went against all of their presuppositions about how life is supposed to turn out. So we sang this morning a song, uh, 10,000 Reasons. And a few years ago, um, Carolyn's brother and his wife, our nephew, Stephen, was uh, killed in a car accident when he was 24 years old. And Rob and Wendy's lives have been changed by that because life did not turn out for them the way that it's supposed to. So these disciples on this road are disillusioned. Everything looks hopeless. And it may be that you're going through that kind of time right now. For sure, perhaps you have in the past, or let me guarantee you, it's coming in the future. Those kind of things just happen as a part of life. So that's the context, the story. Uh, two people are walking on a road to the town of Emmaus, which is north and west of Jerusalem. They may be going home. It doesn't really tell us. I'm getting a little feedback from... Uh, um, they, it doesn't really say. It just says two people. We don't even know for sure. It may have been a man and a woman, a husband and wife. It may have just been two men. What we do know is that one of them's name was Cleopas because he's named but as they, um, as they discuss all that's happened, Jesus draws near, and that was not an unusual thing in those days for travelers to walk together because there were robbers on the road. I mean, we think we have it bad because there's a lot of traffic. Well, there, there was people who were happy to waylay you, lay you in the ditch bleeding and leave you. If, if not dead, then at least badly injured. And of course, that's what the story of the Good Samaritan's about. So Jesus drew near and, and walks with them but the Bible says something very interesting. Verse 16, it says that they were kept from recognizing 
Jesus. So these two, these two people did not know that it was Jesus. Mark actually uh, speaks of Jesus being in another form in his gospel. And so the question would be, if you think about it, what kept them from recognizing Jesus? <clears throat> did God just kind of drop a, um, blinders over their eyes? Or was it something different? Was it their fear and their confusion and their sadness about what had happened in these last few days leading up to their present moment? Was it those emotions, those very human emotions that was blinding them to who Jesus was? And another question which occurs to us, I think, likely, is why did Jesus, why didn't he just reveal himself right away? And I'll let you think about those things <coughs> because, of course, there's no, the Bible doesn't give us the answer. But it's well worth thinking about. So as followers of Jesus, let me just suggest something. As followers of Jesus, the Bible says we are to walk by faith and not by sight. So sometimes we wonder why doesn't God do this or this or this or this or this that I want him to do. And part of the answer to that is always that he wants us to walk by faith. He wants us to trust him. It says without faith it's impossible to please God. Because those who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So faith, walking along, not knowing kind of what the next step's going to be, that's pleasing uh, to God. Another verse from Hebrews says, don't be forgetful to entertain strangers. To welcome strangers into your house. Because some have, have entertained angels unawares because they've done that. And that may be another reason, because if God just has us doing things because we think we're going to get something for ourselves out of it, then it, it loses some of the, the good that we might otherwise experience. So Jesus, as he comes, he asks about their conversation, and their response is rather striking. <coughs> the Bible says they stood still looking sad. Jesus kind of nailed exactly where they were at by asking them, what's your conversation about? So Cleopas responds, well, have you not heard about, about Jesus and about what's happened? And he talks about this one who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, and how our rulers delivered him up and condemned him, and, and he was crucified. And, and, and then Cleopas said, but we had hoped. But we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. So there's hope struggling to survive in the midst of all of these things that had happened. And he goes on, now the third day, it's now the third day since these things. And of course, Jesus had promised he would rise on the third day. <clears throat> and the women had gone to the tomb, did not find his body. Some others who went to investigate him, they did not see. So Jesus has been up to this point the perfect guest. He's just kind of listened as they've talked. He's asked questions, drawn them out. A good example of what we need to do with other people when we're talking with them. But now he speaks in return. And as he does, he gently rebukes his disciples. He encourages them, and then he teaches them to look at life and its events through three corrective lenses. God's trifocals if you will. So it's vital for us to remember today as we look at this story that the scripture tells us that until a person comes to faith 
and repentance in Jesus until we're born again or saved, we are spiritually blind. Every single one of us. Spiritually blind, without exception. And I've given you on the back of your insert there, if you want to look at them from time to time, most of the verses that I'll reference here this morning. But Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he's in the, uh, the, the synagogue in Capernaum. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 61. And he says, I have come to proclaim recovering of sight to the blind. So that was part of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So, so the people around you, friends, as you interact with them day by day at your work or your school or, or in the community, they're blinded. If they, don't, if they don't know the Lord, they're blinded by so many things that Satan has blinded them with. And then Jesus, when he healed the man born blind, said something very interesting. He came, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. So the main point being that the Bible speaks of a blindness that we're set free from when we confess the name of Jesus, when we're brought out of the kingdom of darkness by the power of God into the kingdom of light. And though that is true for us as believers, there's still a blindness that we can struggle with. And, it, and that blindness is the blindness that's brought by pain and sorrow and disappointment as we go through the events of life. And so we always need to be careful that we think, lest we think that the way we see life is really the way it is. Rarely is it the way it is. Because there's so many things that are impinging upon our perception of life. So Jesus, to penetrate the fog that these disciples are experiencing, he, he does two things, speaks to them in two ways. First of all, he, he gently rebukes them. <clears throat> he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So he rebukes them for foolishness. On the back of your, your insert there, I've given you a verse from Psalm 14 where it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So foolishness then is living as if there is no God. And, and, and far too often, friends, even as Christians, we live that way. We live as if there is no God. We live as if there is no one who loves us. We live as if there's no one in charge of things. And, and we allow all of the things of life to overwhelm us. And so Jesus might perhaps be gently rebuking us this morning to remember that there is a God and he's in charge, and nothing is outside of his care. Jesus also chides them here a little bit, not for being ignorant of what the scriptures say, although that may be implied, but for being slow or unwilling to believe its testimony. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And again, that's something we wrestle with, believing that when Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that he means that. And when he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all the other things you need, food, clothing, all those other things, I'll add to you. We don't always take him at his word and live in that way. So that's the first thing Jesus does. The second thing he does is he speaks to them 
and gives them a detailed lesson, I think, about how they are to look at life through these three corrective lenses that I want to talk to you about. And the first lens, if we are going to see life clearly, is the lens of the sovereignty of God. Was it not necessary, Jesus said, for the Messiah to suffer these things? And of course, the sovereignty of God is one of the great doctrines of Scripture. A doctrine has got a bad rap these days. People tend to say that when you talk about doctrine, your eyes begin to glaze over. But let me tell you that doctrine is the most eminently practical thing. And the, and the doctrine of the sovereignty of God says this, in the words of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, that God works out all things according to the counsel of his will. God works out all things, A-double-L, all things according to the counsel of his will. He looks after everything. He's, he's sovereign over everything. During this last year when I've been off work, I've got probably way too involved <coughs> in watching American political life. And the thing that encourages me as I watch that, not to mention our own and other countries, is the theme of the book of Daniel, which says, the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men, and he appoints over them whoever he wishes. So you can say, friends, and it is true, that God appointed Donald Trump to be the President of the United States. May not last long, may last for a long time, but that was what God wanted. And God is working out his sovereign will in the midst of that, which may to you be great or may to you be horrendous. I don't need to know your political uh, affiliations. So these disciples here on this road to Emmaus are bewildered and disillusioned by the events which have disrupted their lives. Their way of understanding life has been turned upside down, and so Jesus teaches them about himself from his word. And as he does, he reminds them that in God's great wisdom, all that had happened of late had been necessary, needful, required, important from God's standpoint. In what, in what happened to Jesus himself. And, and we may ask, as they likely did too in their hearts, death and suffering and sorrow and pain, those things are necessary. And God's difficult, honest answer is yes. They are necessary. So just a couple examples, uh, again, on the back or in your Bible. Isaiah, uh, chapter 53, verse 10. It was the Lord's will to uh, crush him. And he has put him to grief. And in just a moment, of course, together, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so for us, we always need to bear in mind that the very best thing that happened in the world, in the history of our world, our salvation and the salvation of all of the body of Christ and those who believe in God, all of that came out of the worst thing that happened in life, and that is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you, you can be sure, my friends, that if God brings the very best out of the sufferings of his Son, it may be out of your sufferings that God brings the very best for you. Because that's how he works. The Bible says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And that's how I learn. 
I don't like learning that way, but that's how I learned. It was when I was lying in the hospital with a broken leg. A horse fell on me, grade 10, lying in the hospital with a broken leg, far from my family. That's when I learned an awful lot about God and what he was like and the fact he was caring for me there in that place. Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was not an accident that Jesus died. It was not the triumph of the devil. It was not the machinations of the Romans. Although all who were involved in that are responsible for their part. That's the amazing thing is that the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men are both true of the scriptures. And as someone once said, a heretic is someone who cannot deal with balance or moderation because both those things are true. So Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was necessary for him. And so, my friends, in our lives, things may happen and trouble may come and people may do their worst, but in the midst of it all, God will work out his purposes for good. And that verse that I'm sure many of you know and can probably quote, we have to be careful how we use it because it can sound like we're unsympathetic, is the verse from Romans chapter 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. Not just a few of them, but all things. And then God, I think, to remind us that he knows what he's doing, starts at the beginning for those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and he goes right to the end, to the glorification of what's going to happen when we stand before Jesus and are with him and his people <coughs> forever. All things work together for good. So as followers of Jesus then, we too will face times in life when we are confused and hurt and bewildered by circumstances and events. So you can go to the life of Job, <coughs> who likely never knew why God put him through all those things until he got to glory. The Apostle Paul, who prayed three times that God would take away his thorn in the flesh, and God said to, to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Or the prophets, Jeremiah, down that well, wondering if he's going to survive that experience or not. Others who countless ages have been put to death even because of Jesus and the testimony of him. So it's not wrong for us to feel confused and hurt and bewildered by circumstances and events. That's okay. And we need to cry out to God in the midst of those things. But what the vital question is, is how will we respond? And Jesus reminds us here to look at life, the good and the bad, through the lens of God's sovereignty. God is always there working out his goodwill. Second lens we need to look at is the lens of the truth of Scripture. It says, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself beginning with Moses and the prophets. So life then brings us circumstances and trials which we find painful 
and hard to understand. And in those times, we need to look at life not only through the lens of the sovereignty of God, but through the lens of the truth of Scripture. <clears throat> now, I want you to think about Jesus for a minute on the road to Emmaus. Where had Jesus just been? Well, he was in the grave. He wasn't just lying there. First Peter tells us that being put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And there's a bunch of other interesting verses like that in the scriptures that I won't go into with you right now. But the point is this. Jesus was down there in the lower regions proclaiming what he had just done on the cross. And so here, as he's back with these two disillusioned followers of his on the road to Emmaus, think of what Jesus could have talked to them about. Think of all the things he could have talked to them about heaven or about the lower regions or about any one of a dozen other things. And what does he do with them? He, he takes them to the Bible and he has a Bible study with them on the road to Emmaus. That's what he did with them. That's what he considered to be the most important thing for them in the midst of where they were at. And the same thing is true for you and I. A godly and accurate understanding of life and its events begins with the word of God, always. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. So if, if you and I don't fear God, don't understand him, don't relate to him. We haven't even started yet on the road to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then a verse that, at least in my day, young Bible school students like to quote to one another, I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. So that was a joke, of course, because we didn't know more than all our teachers. But on the other hand, you and I, the promise here is that if you will give yourself to the statutes of God, to meditating on them, thinking about them, applying them to your life, you will have more insight than many, many people that you run across because you're taking God's word seriously. Some more questions. Did you know that Jesus often answered people with questions? Why do you think in all of the, the course of history that God went to the trouble of giving his people in the Old Testament, in the New Testament today, why did he give us a book? Why didn't he just send angels down from heaven or have us, you know, have dreams and visions and all those other things? God gave us a book, a book that he has preserved through millennia of time, and he has solemnly warned us in Revelation as well as in several other places not to add to it or take away from it. There's a, there's a lesson there for us. We are to be people of the book, the scriptures. So in our world that says there is no truth or your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, as long as you don't impose your truth on me, I'm okay with that. That's even breaking down now. Because now the world tends to say to us, if you don't believe the way I believe, I'm going to come after you. <clears throat> in the world which says there is no truth, we must soak in this book which is the truth because it looks to Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And it's really important for us to remember that you know and I know nothing concrete about God 
and his nature and his truth apart from this book. Nothing. Concrete. So let me explain what I mean. The Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter his speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. So we understand something about God from that. We understand his glory. We understand some of his nature. But that is explained to you and to me in the, in the Bible. And the person of Christ, of course, that is where the fullness of God was. And it's, it's when we look at Jesus that we understand God. But you cannot look at Jesus accurately unless you look at this book. If you just want to take the bystanders away uh, about what they think of Jesus, then you're going to go way off on a, a thousand different rabbit trails. This is the only safe place for us to go to understand who Jesus is and what he is like. And so that's why I think God reminds us and Jesus reminds us that we are to go to the book. Years ago in, uh, at North American Baptist Seminary, which it was <coughs> when I went there, there was a man named David Priestley who was our theology teacher. I don't remember much of what David Priestley said, I think God just kind of folded it into my knowledge. I don't mean he didn't teach me anything. What I'm saying is I don't remember. My memory is not that great. But one thing I do remember him saying is this. God is a talker. God is a talker. And here is how he communicates with you and I. is through his word. So we must work, my friends, at the habit of always looking at life and its circumstances through the lens of Scripture. Work, that's the word. And so I must ask you, as the meddling preacher, are you devoting yourself to hearing and reading and studying and memorizing and meditating on God's word? Because to the, to the degree that you do that, to the degree that that is your passion in life, to that degree you will understand life better. If you hope that by watching TV or talking to people on the street or a thousand other things that you're going to understand life. No. That stuff will feed into your understanding that the Bible gives you, God gives you through the Bible, and you'll be able to illustrate what the Bible says, but if you start at the world and go to the Bible, you're going the wrong way. You start at the Bible and from there go to the culture in which you live. And there's no excuses anymore for not being able to listen to our Bible. On my cell phone, I've got uh, one printed version of the Bible, at least, if not two, and I've got two versions that I can listen to. There's no excuses anymore. So when you're sitting in traffic or you're sitting on the bus, your Bible can be as close as your cell phone. So then the third lesson, lens that we must look through as we are, if we are to see life clearly is the lens of the person of Christ. Not just the lens of the sovereignty of God and the truth of Scripture, but the person of Christ. It says here, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now you know this, of course. <clears throat> but the, all the scriptures he's talking about there is the Old Testament, right? The part that sometimes as Christians we shy away from a little bit. That's where Jesus went to talk to these disillusioned followers about himself. He went to the Old Testament. And he went to, when, when he went to the Old Testament, he had a particular focus. And that focus was the things concerning himself. So my friend, the things concerning Jesus 
are the essence of the word of God. His person is where we need to go always. So he is the very word of God. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And, and we will not again understand the Bible, ourselves, or life if we do not take this approach when we go to the scriptures. It's the key that unlocks the scriptures for us. So there's a man named Warren Wearsby whose books I have and lots of other guys who study the Bible do. I hope you do too. And Warren Wearsby says about this occasion on the Maus Road, and I quote, that was some Bible conference. I wish I could have been there. Imagine the greatest teacher explaining the greatest themes from the greatest book, bringing the greatest blessing to men's lives. Perhaps Jesus started at Genesis 3 and verse 15, the first promise of the Redeemer, and traced that promise through the scriptures. He may have lingered at Genesis 22, which tells of Abraham placing his only beloved son on the altar. Surely he touched on Passover when blood of the lamb was painted on the doorposts and the lintel of the house. The Levitical sacrifices, the tabernacle ceremonies, the day of atonement, the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus, remember, said, unless I be lifted up, or if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. That's the picture of the serpent in the wilderness. When Moses nailed that snake on a post and anyone who looked at the snake was healed, well, that's Jesus in picture. Surely he went to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and the prophetic messages of Psalm 22 and 69. The key to understanding the Bible is to see Jesus on every page. He did not teach them only doctrine or prophecy. He taught them the things concerning himself. End of quote. Now the sad thing is that the Jews, though they knew the scriptures well, had totally missed the central teaching of God's word. And to these ones who were trying to kill him, Jesus said... In John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. And as evangelical Christians in the 21st century, that's probably one of our dangers too. We think we know the Bible well. And sometimes we depend on that too much instead of looking at the scriptures in order that we may see Christ as he's revealed there. <clears throat> well, as they come to the journey's end, Jesus is persuaded to go in and to have fellowship with these friends. And as he breaks the bread with them and gives thanks, their eyes are open and they recognize him. Their faith becomes sight. Rest and relaxation are forgotten. They hurry back to Jerusalem to tell their brothers and sisters in the Lord. Just a couple little notes here about this section. It's notable to me that Jesus is recognized by these ones in the close fellowship of a meal with him, very possibly the Lord's Supper. And so yes, you come to the Lord's Supper this morning. Ask Jesus to see him just a little bit more clearly. To, to let him, to let you understand him just a bit better as we fellowship here. And the second little note, these disciples realized that their hearts had burned. Did not our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us? 
And my friend, that is a sign today too of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. When your heart burns within you, when you read the scriptures at home, when you hear them as we're gathered uh, together in the house of God. Well, as we conclude today, uh, let me just ask you this question. <clears throat> of all the places that Jesus could have been, of all the things that he could have done, why did he choose to spend three, three and a half, four hours with two disillusioned, discouraged disciples on a lonely road with nobody watching? Nowadays, you know, we would have sent him out on the lecture circuit so that everyone could see that he was risen from the dead. That was not Jesus. In fact, there's a case to be made that says he only appeared to those who were his followers after the resurrection. Why did Jesus choose to be in this place? Three quick reasons. I think, first of all, that Jesus is reminding you and I, everyone who reads, of his very real concern for those who are his followers. When we are engulfed in despair and discouragement, Jesus cares about that. And he's there. Even though you don't sense his presence or feel that he's there, he is there. Second reason. I think this meeting also served historically to help establish the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Remember in the scripture it says that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, that matters established. Well, here's two witnesses who were able to verify that Jesus truly had risen from the dead. Third reason. I think Jesus is showing us what God is like. And he's showing us how he delights in the fellowship that he has with his people. So I won't take long, but let, let, let me just give you some examples. So there's God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, back in the Garden of Eden, and, and walking with Adam as well. And there he is in Genesis chapter 18, before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, he comes to Abraham and he tells Abraham what he's going to do. And Abraham, that famous prayer, you know, when, when God... When Abraham said, well, you know, just be patient with me. What if there's only 10 people there? Will you destroy the city? And God says, no. If there's 10 people there, righteous people, I won't destroy the city. There he is meeting with Jacob before he faced Esau. And, and there's that wrestling match. And it, Jacob comes out of it with a, a thigh upon which he limped for the rest of his life and a new name. And the new name was Israel. And there he is seeking out Joshua before the battle of Jericho. And there he is appearing to Gideon who's hiding in a wine press. And then there's one of my favorite ones where I just read it this morning as Carol and I try to read through the Bible every year if we can. First uh, Samuel chapter 3. Little Samuel, he's, he's a little boy and he's sleeping somewhere close to the ark of God. So maybe in the Holy of Holies. And God says to him, Samuel. And he doesn't know God. So he gets up and runs to Eli and says, here I am, what do you want? And Eli says, I didn't call you, go back to bed. So he goes back to bed, Samuel, Samuel. And, God, and, and he gets up, runs to Eli, says, here I am, what do you want? I didn't call you, go back to bed. Third time, he gets up, uh, God calls him, Samuel, Samuel. And he gets up and runs to Eli and finally Eli begins to get it. And he says, next time, if he speaks to you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant's listening. And then the Bible says, and God came and stood there as before and called Samuel and said, Samuel, Samuel. What kind of a God comes and stands 
and speaks to a little boy. Our God does. Our God does. And I think that's what Jesus was showing, is that he, God loves us, he's concerned with us, he's, he's always there with us, even though we don't see or sense him. And that may be where you find yourself today, discouraged and sad and lonely and disillusioned and your world turns upside down. <clears throat> and what I want you to know, and God wants you to know, is that quite unknown to us as a rule on our Emmaus Road, Jesus is walking right there with us. Unbeknownst to us. And as we wrestle with the stress and the sorrow and the pain of life, he is concerned with those things. And he teaches us to look at life through these lenses. The lens of the sovereignty of God. God's in control. It may not feel like it, but he's in control, and I need to remember that. The lens of the truth of Scripture. What does God want me to learn about himself, about his son, from his word in the midst of these circumstances? And the lens of the person of Christ. Where is Jesus in what I'm facing? How can I be more like him? How can I understand him better? How can I lean on him and his promises in order to persevere? And so, my friend, in life's crisis, crises, if we will trust Jesus and heed his Spirit's voice in Scripture, we will find him to be present with us, and he will teach us from his word. Father, thank you for this example of your son Jesus, who, of all the things he could have done, chose to spend three or four hours walking with these disciples on the road to Emmaus, explaining to them the things concerning himself. And Father, will, may you give us the grace and the discipline to set aside the time in our lives to sit down with your word and listen to your voice, the voice of your spirit as he speaks to us about your son Jesus in this wonderful book you've given to us. We thank you for it and commit ourselves into your care as we go together into this time of remembering you around your table, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.